Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's speaker is the Reverend Professor Mark Cartilage. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. I'd like to um, begin with a, a prayer from Anglican liturgy, if I may. It's slightly got an Anglican feel to it today. Um, for those of you who are Anglicans, how many Anglicans are here? Oh, we've got about four, well, five, okay, that's great, good. Um, I hope you appreciate the liturgy. Uh, for those of you who are not well, you know, eventually you might migrate to the Holy Mother Church, we'll see. Okay, this is, this is for morning prayer. So this is a, a prayer, an Advent prayer, let's pray together. Blessed are you, sovereign God of all. To you be praise and glory forever. In your tender compassion, the dawn from on high is breaking upon us to dispel the lingering shadows of night. As we look for your coming among us this day, open our eyes to behold your presence and strengthen our hands to do your will that the world may rejoice and give you praise. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be God forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to say a really big thank you for those who were involved in the carol service, or carol concert rather, on Saturday night. It was a fabulous event, so thank you so much for everybody involved in the concert. It really was... uh, worth missing England being beaten by France. Um, Always good on these occasions to watch the highlights and not get involved in the emotional trauma of England losing yet again. One day, 1966 might be repeated. You never know. So this is Advent. Um, Having celebrated Christmas... On Saturday night, we're moving backwards to Advent. I find, actually, that the seasons, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, all get a bit jumbled up. Don't you find that? Uh, When I was at the the second theological college I went to, Oak Hill, uh, we didn't have a Christmas concert. Instead, the students would put on a Christmas pantomime, which was really interesting, actually, because certain faculty members would make an appearance as imitated by the students. So one particular memorable pantomime was entitled Snow White and the Seven Spiritual Dwarves. (laughs) I'm not recommending this as a practice for LST. I I think that the Christmas concert is a much better practice um, because some faculty members came off well and others did not fare so good. I wouldn't want that to be a, a feature of our Christmas celebrations here. Advent is a period of waiting, it's a period of reflection, it's a period of anticipation, anticipating the coming, the second coming of Christ. It's a penitential season as well, when we can examine ourselves, reflect on our lives, and think about our own walk before the Lord. There's a phrase, a biblical phrase, that's used within the liturgy in Advent, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. There's something about Advent that prepares us, if we use it aright, that we may put on Christ and make no provision for our own selfish desires. 
As part of the Advent liturgy, uh, we read Psalms th- uh, Isaiah 35. So I'd like to uh, turn to Isaiah 35, if I may. Um, we can read Scripture in terms of its original context, but we can also take Scripture and use it within our prayers and our liturgy and our worship. And that's what the Anglican tradition does. It takes hold of portions of Scripture and creates hymns or songs and uses them within uh, the liturgy. They're called canticles, and uh, Isaiah 35 has become a canticle. So whilst its original context, which I'll go into in just a moment, obviously is important, it has a secondary context, which is the worshipping life of the church. Uh, For those of you familiar with Isaiah, um, this is a period of turmoil in the history of the country. There is um, the threat of war. There is a, a war machine roaming around the area, the ancient Near East, called Assyria. And Assyria is threatening various countries, including Israel. And in chapter 34 of Isaiah, there is a judgment, an oracle of judgment against the the warring nature of Assyria, but the whole nation. So verse 2 of chapter 34, the Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. There is a judgment on those who would seek to make war on others. The picture is of the beauty of creation being made desolate by war. The good things of creation that God has put in place are being distorted by the evil of humanity. That's chapter 34. By contrast, chapter 35 is a different picture. It is about desolation being turned into beauty. It is about the desert becoming a beautiful garden once again. And that's the picture I want to talk about today. It's a picture of abundance, it's a picture of beauty, it's a picture of joy. But at the heart of it is an assumption that only when we trust the Lord will we receive these kinds of things. At the heart of it is a question of trust. Whom do we trust? What do we trust? And so Isaiah wants to push us, if you like, to trust the Lord for the good things in life. Of course, um, historically, chapter 36 uh, picks up the war theme again and the visit by the Assyrians to threaten uh, Israel and King Hezekiah and all of that. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the joy of the redeemed in chapter 35. For me, as I read this and I've consulted commentaries, it seems to me this is a a wonderful poem. And it's split in three sections, verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 7, and then 8 to 10. And the first section, verses 1 to 4, I would refer to as the glory of the Lord. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The slain, sorry, gone backwards. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come 
and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. It's a wonderful picture. The land is personified. The land rejoices. The desert rejoices. New flowers spring up and rejoice and sing. And the glory of the Lord is seen through the glory of creation. Have you ever seen the glory of the Lord through the glory of creation? We've been on a walk and suddenly the sun breaks through the trees and dazzles you. Or you've looked out on the scenery and thought, wow, that is incredible. In Exodus, we come across the experience of the glory of the Lord. The first time it appears in Exodus 16, it's visible as a cloud in the desert. And then there are other occasions. And at the end of Exodus, we have the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, the presence of, Lord, of the Lord, the weightiness of the glory and the majesty and the presence of the Lord. A few years ago, a friend of mine visited a church in America called Bethel. Anybody been to Bethel in Reading? One person. Hurrah! Really? Excellent. And the story of Bethel in Reading and the intensity of their doxology, their worship being so powerful that God is made manifest in a glory cloud. Anybody heard of the glory cloud? Yeah. I was somewhat cynical of the glory crowd. I mean, I thought there might be a little chap out the back with a smoke machine. But then one of my friends, you might be interested to know, I do have some friends. One of my friends called Anthony, he went out and he came back and he experienced this powerful presence of the Lord. And I said, are you sure it wasn't a little man out the back with a smoke machine? He said, no, 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 it was real. There was something that happened, and there was as if a cloud appeared over the heads of the congregants, worshipping the Lord. We can't manufacture, manufacture the presence of God. We can't do it. When God presents himself in a tangible way, that we say to ourselves and to others, the Lord is here. It's a gift. And when that happens, all we can do, in a sense, is open our hands and receive it as a gift. But we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear what it is the Lord is doing. So however you experience the glory of the Lord this Advent, my prayer is that you have eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that God is doing. That somehow in the experience, your hands will be strengthened for action. Your knees will become st stable for action and your heart strengthened with conviction. Talking of um, knees being strengthened, do please pray for my darling wife, Joan. She's having a knee operation tomorrow. Uh, knee replacement surgery, so you can pray for her. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. In fact, I think she's watching um, online, so Joan, we'll be praying for you today.
Verses 5 to 7. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. This is a future orientation. When the Lord comes in his glory and creation is transformed in this future state, then these things will happen. The blind and the deaf will see and hear. The lame will leap for joy. No longer will people be speechless. They will sing with hope. In a way, the totality of humanity will be, will be restored. It's not just about these individual things. Basically, it's a way of the saying, the poet saying, look, the whole of humanity will be transformed. The whole of creation will be transformed. God does it. And he does it as a gift to his creation. There's going to be water in the desert in such abundance that it will overflow. The land won't be parched anymore. It'll be incredible what happens. The desolate ground will be made abundant. And those wild animals, those wild animals won't be around anymore. There's going to be a splashy meadow of beauty. Because God takes the barren and makes it abundant. That's an amazing thing. God takes the barren and makes it abundant. Uh, years and years ago, again, a story from the past, Jen and I were missionaries in Nigeria. And uh, during the end of the first dry season, uh, we had no water. No water whatsoever. We turned on our taps in our missionary bungalow, no water. Why? Because the water supply was rain from the roof of the house that drained into a tank at the back of the garden. And when the tank ran dry, we had no water. We'd spend a third of our missionary stipend on bottled water to drink. The students were very kind, and they would bring us two buckets of well water a day. That's very kind of them, really. They didn't have to do that. But the well would run dry and then fill up. And the water from the well wasn't exactly clean couldn't drink it. You could wash your clothes in it, you could use it for the loo, but you couldn't really drink it. And the dry season seemed to go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. We had this anticipation that it would finish. One day we were going to get rain. I'm, our Nigerian friends would say, yeah, the rain is coming, the rain is coming. Very positive people, Nigerians. The rain is coming, just be patient. You white people are not very patient. You've got to be patient. In, in Yoruba, uh, white people are called oibo. The oibo are not very patient. And we weren't very patient. But I remember the night the rain came. It was fantastic. John and I got so excited. I mean, have you been excited with rain? Anybody been excited? Yeah. We got so excited... We ran out of our missionary bungalow and we were splashing around and dancing in the rain. 
And our Nigerian friends were going, these crazy white people <laughs> dancing in the rain. But we were so happy. And there were puddles everywhere, and it was a right mess. But we didn't care. Because we had joy and gladness in our hearts because God had provided the rain. I sense something of that in this passage. God provides the water for life. The thirsty ground bubbling up. The burning sand becoming a pool of water. Amazing. Amazing. When was the last time that you anticipated something good from God? And you waited and you waited and you waited and it didn't come. But at the moment when you almost gave up, it arrived. Uh, in America, Joan worked with a Pentecostal church and a black Pentecostal church in a very poor area. And they used to sing a song, which I won't sing because I can't sing it the way they sang it. But it was, God is the on-time God. Doesn't come early, doesn't come late. God comes on time. The poorest of the poor knew something of the abundance of the presence of God and the provision of God at the moment of need. Finally, verses 8 to 10. And there will be a highway there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, no, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. What an amazing promise. Whether this is a, a foretaste or a, a prophetic um, word about returning from exile or whether it's about the pilgrimage. Uh, it's probably about both, actually. The pilgrimage to the city of God. To experience fellowship with God to experience the glory of the Lord. This is a holy way. This is a privileged way. It's likely that the image that um, is in mind here is of an elevated path that's, that's been prepared, that is above the rest of the scenery. You could see it far off, and you could see people on the path journeying towards Zion. You could see people coming as groups, kind of like in caravans, going together. They're not on their own. They're doing it together. They are people who know they have been made clean. They are people who don't despise the way. 
They're not fools. They're wise. And they know that this way, this journey, is a safe journey because there are no lions and there are no ravenous beasts. They have been removed from this journey. It's a safe journey. They have been redeemed. They have been ransomed. They've been bought with a price by the kinsman redeemer. And for us, we would say that kinsman redeemer is Jesus. No sorrow, no sighing, no fear, but joy. What an amazing picture. The people of God are a pilgrim people on a journey towards God. And one day, one day, there will be a completion of all things. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. One day, we will experience that city of God. That's an amazing promise. Incredible hope that what we see around us is not what will be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That is what the Lord does. He makes everything new. He takes the desolation, the barrenness, the weakness, and he turns it into abundance. He turns it into joy and gladness. The people on the way are a glad people because they know where they're going and they know with whom they are traveling. So, let me close by saying, Advent is about hope. It is about God being with us on the journey. It's about God transforming our lives and giving us a sense of anticipation of what he is doing and what he will do. I want to encourage you this Advent, before we get caught up in the busyness of Christmas, to take time out whether it's half a day, a full day, whatever it is, take time out to be with the Lord. So ask the question, what is he doing in your life? What anticipation is he bringing into your spiritual life? What is the Lord doing that's new for you today? And sometimes we just have to step outside of the busyness of life to discover that. We're not going to find it in the busyness. We have to step back. So this Advent, I want to encourage you to step back and to discern what it is the Lord is doing with you on the journey. 
Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LSD and our courses, please visit our website.